and then Spinner's Pizza, family-owned since 1994, specializing in hand-spun thin-crust Italian pizza, region's number one. So on your way home from the hike, just hit Daskam Road off Route 93 and say hi to Dolls and Pops and grab your sticker. Yeah, and you have to tell Spinner's, I'm sorry, I've been like putting the wrong link. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I put a link to a pizza place in New Jersey for them on the show. Can you imagine some people are showing up in New Jersey going, where's my sticker? Hey, hey, where's my sticker? <laughs> I went how many, I haven't even gone back to look. I went how many weeks I had that in the wrong link. No, that's Italian. Where's my sticker? <laughs> yeah. So, sorry, Spinner's, we'll correct that link. <laughs> yeah. Well, you'll be swimming with the fishes. this time like nasal or respiratory what's going on I, I had this pattern where I'll get sick and then I'll feel better and then I get this persistent cough and I feel like you took me out on that crappy day on the Algonquin Traverse and that got me hmm. sick uh, it's possible maybe so. some something you picked up on the way well could be but we have Sarah here tonight so Sarah I have a question for you I've been doing like the hot lemon tea and all that stuff, but like when you have a persistent cough, like what do you recommend to address it besides just tea? Um, well, my first recommendation was going to be a tea, so there's that. Um, I really love the traditional medicinals throat coat tea, and I'll usually oh. put in some local honey with that and maybe some oh. fresh lemon juice. Um, I also really promote. And I am not a dietitian. This is not, you know, medical advice, but this is what I do for myself and some clients do is using some zinc or vitamin C as a supplement um, and really just increasing like vitamin intake by food, if you will. Uh, so adding in some veggies, also a big fan of elderberry syrup for like the cold and flu season. Hmm. Okay, yeah, I think we have some of that elderberry. I, I need to um, order some more kombucha too because I feel like it's not that ginger kombucha was oh, good ginger is well, fantastic but. Sarah any take on like oil of oregano or cinnamon or turmeric or any of these hardcore spices which I have on my in my diet but uh not really 
Um, not too much. I don't know a ton about oil of oregano yeah. or cinnamon. Um, turmeric, I know, is really great for anti-inflammatory purposes. Mm-hmm. I personally do either use turmeric in my just overall diet or supplement with it for like endometriosis, which we might get into. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is helpful. Or even if you're like just feeling overall inflamed, I do think that turmeric is so powerful, as you said. Yeah. Neat. All right, well, I apologize ahead of time if I don't hit my mute button and I cough on you guys tonight, but I'll try to be good. Um, but some housekeeping stuff here, Stomp. So we have the holiday season coming up, so I think we're going to have this show coming out on the 9th. We got another show scheduled for the 16th, and then we're going to be off on the 23rd and 30th, and then we'll be back on January 6th. But you and Mrs. Stomp may have... You guys might get drunk some night over the holiday season and drop something. You might have a surprise. You know, it's probably guaranteed, so stay tuned. (laughs) Okay. Okay. (laughs) And then um, the other thing I have is just a reminder, we are doing a buddy hike on January 14th. We've got a whole bunch of people signed up, and I'm going to be leading one group. I think Stomp's going to be joining us as well. Um, we've got a couple of people, Julie from the Hiking Buddies, and a couple of other folks are going to be helping to split the group up. So we're going to go at different times, so we're not going to have too many crowds. But we will be going to Reckless Brewing after the event. So if you're around and you want to go to Reckless Brewing, I'm thinking we're going to be there around like 1, 130, something. Yeah, and I think the um, the Fantasy Pants crew might be there as well if you haven't met them. Nice guys. So it should be a nice oh, time. Awesome. I don't know how I got roped into this, but hopefully nobody needs rescue. Oh, by the way, um, I was thinking maybe tossing out the idea of doing like a a hundredth episode hangout, not like a show or anything like that, but just pick a location, probably reckless and just hang out and meet everybody and just chill. So maybe that'll get some traction and happen. That would probably be like in early spring, maybe April or May. As long as I don't have to do any work for it, I'll just show up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Hopefully you'll be over your cold. <laughs> oh, boy. Exactly. Um, <laughs> all right, Stomp. So last week, Keith was a hit, you oh said. Oh, my God, yeah. Um, you got a lot of good oh, feedback. Oh, a ton of feedback. Yeah, listeners really enjoyed that. Some people were saying it was the, the best guest ever, and I certainly had a great time. No pressure, Sarah. I'm sorry? No pressure, oh, yeah. Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, I'm sure you'll do fine, Sarah. But uh, yeah, it was it was good. So a lot of good feedback and um, some folks asking to have him on again. But uh, he left me after the recording with a funny story that I just wanted to share with everybody. He had actually showed up in the area really early. We were scheduled to record at 7. And he sat himself down at a local restaurant and just was killing a couple hours. And the waitress there was curious as to what he was all about and came up to him and was asking him, hey, what are you doing here? You know, you don't look like you're from the area. And uh, long story short, he said, I'm recording a podcast at the Woodpecker Studio. And of course, being a local woman, the uh, the waitress said, is that what's going in at the Woodpeckers? <laughs> so she was referring to the restaurant that's currently becoming like a fish market or a deli, that type of thing. So there's uh, this new rumor around town now that the old Woodpeckers is going to be a fish market and a recording podcast studio. So how cool is that? (laughs) 
Oh my God. So funny. That is funny. Well, people would be very disappointed if they saw the Woodpecker Studio, I think. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit of a surprise. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's not bad. All right, so um, moving on here, we got a couple of sort of miscellaneous things here. So there's a, so I think uh, about uh, two months ago or so, we talked about Arlette um, Land, who had completed the um, um, 11 National Scenic Trails. And, um, you know, I don't know how many years it took her, but there's another person that um, has completed this recently. And um, his name is Patrick French. Yeah, he's a New Hampshire native. Yeah, he's on number 10. And um, yeah, he just completed this. He started in 2015 with the Appalachian Trail. And then he finished with the North Country National Scenic Trail in November. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty impressive. You've hiked from North Dakota to Vermont. Uh, And you know this guy from uh, social media, apparently? I know, so I was in like a, a hiking group with <laughs> with him, excuse me for coughing, um, and then he kind of, dis- I think he got into like the long distance hiking and kind of disappeared, so I know of him. Yeah. So, um, you know, I still have to reach out to Arlette to see if we can schedule her to get in here, but maybe I can get Patrick to come on as well, but it's pretty impressive. So he said he had frostbite three times. Eh, no big deal. Um, <laughs> yeah, which is pretty... Uh, Pretty impressive that he was able to make it through that. So seven years later, he has completed the whole thing. And that was submitted by uh, Runcast Run. Thank you very much. We're getting a lot of submissions. And I, I got to say, it's really helpful for us developing these scripts to get these stories along the way. So keep keep at it. Much appreciated. Great. And then, Stomp, you had put in a video that we'll post on the show notes yeah. about uh, these devices that people put on their vehicles for getting traction so it's a very interesting video i thought a four-wheel drive was enough but it seems like yeah what is it well in some cases people rely on different forms of traction whether it be um, claws or chains or to my surprise this device called a snow sock which is basically like a, a sleeve that covers it's like a canvas sleeve that covers your tires and this guy goes into a really uh, deep dive on what is the best traction what worked the best what didn't work so great how the braking was and things like that so like mike said we'll just give you the video and you can check it out but it's a really interesting um video i learned a lot actually yeah i watched the video like i think the the sock it's basically the the chains around the tires make sense to me it seems like that helps with the with the oh sure um the grip, but I didn't, the sock piece of it is, it's essentially putting fabric around your tires to get more grip, I guess. But it seems like a lot of times when they were doing the field tests, the, the, the fabric would just get shredded up. And True. Not, a, not as effective. So I would go with the chains. Agreed. Right. Yeah, for sure. It's just durability. But it was funny seeing fabric actually work. Yeah, yeah, I don't know how realistic it is, but the chains also seemed a lot easier to get on and to stay on. So anyway, if you need that, if you have a steep driveway, good luck. Um, But speaking of steep, we've got the Mount Washington Road Race. The lottery is opening up on February 14th. And then when do they typically make the announcement stop? In like March? Yeah, yeah, it's about four weeks or so. And then they close it. Next to impossible to get in, but... You're going to sign up? Oh, absolutely. I'm in. Yeah. I'll tell you what I've been up to. 
uh, shortly, but um, I'm, I'm in this year. I'm not hopeful, but I'm definitely going to try. All right. Well, I'm going to sign up. I'm signing up for the lottery. Okay. Sarah, have you ever done this race? Are you, are, you, are you crazy person like we are? I have not. I actually don't run on pavement. Just straight oh, trail. No, I have probably... low bone density and stuff, so trails oh. only or dirt roads for me. Well, the trick about the Mount Washington road race, the dirty little secret that nobody tells you about until you've actually run the races, you don't actually run a lot of it. I, I have. I've had times where I've run the whole thing, but the majority of the time, people will stop running after like a mile or two and they just sort of do the power hike or yeah. they'll do a transition from walking and running. So, But it is all pavement. So, hmm. I'll leave it to you too. Maybe I'll hike up <laughs> okay. or something. Oh, thanks. <laughs> It is worth hiking up to check out the race. Like I oh, always absolutely. think it's enjoyable. So, but we'll keep you updated. But Stomp is going to ask you how we can lose some weight to get ready for running this. So we'll cover that later. <laughs> Sounds good. And by the way, uh, we have a couple of uh, sponsors for this segment. Uh, EMS, your Northeast go-to for outdoor gear, guidance, education, and more since 1967. Check them out at ems.com. And we also have CS Instant Coffee, zero-waste instant coffee that comes in compostable packets, perfect for the trail and home. Check them out by going to the link in our show notes, www.csinstant.coffee. Yeah, I'm planning an overnight on um, Mount Adams. I'm going to stay up at one of those cabins. I don't know if I'm going to... I seem to never be able to get gray knob. I usually get kicked out and get sent to the cold camp, but um, I'm going to try to take some of that coffee with me to see how it is. Yeah, that's, it's awesome for backpacking. I mean, can't beat it. It's the best yeah. option for those situations. Yeah, yeah, so I'm looking forward to it. Um so that's good. And then moving on to our next topic here, Stomp, we have a skull was found uh, by a hiker. This man was missing 46 years. Um, and then they uh, somebody was hiking and they found the skull. That's a long time. It reminded me of the stories up here in New Hampshire of people that uh, have disappeared and have not been found. But um, a, a hiker uh, found a skull in 2004 is this dated 2004 it's been identified as that of a wisconsin man who went missing 46 years ago sheriff said so roger lee ellis was 22 when he fled wisconsin rapids in 1976 after an arrest for possessing marijuana ellis told told his family he was heading west because he didn't want to go to jail in 2000 june 2004 a hiker found a human skull about 15 miles south of red lodge montana uh, they also found a femur and a pelvic bone apparently dna tests failed to turn up a match but reanalysis this year using new tech techniques uh identified the bones as belonging to this individual ellis pretty wild huh so it was a long, cold case. Yeah, it seems like a very 1970s story. Like, it, yeah. there's a lot of these cases where people just sort of wandered off. They died. The family never really tracked them down, and they just were just waiting to be identified. Yeah, true. Absolutely. All right, and then the next thing we have on our list here, Snob, you got a lot of a lot of sort of links you you threw over my way. Christmas gifts for hikers. So there's a link for the 22 best Christmas <laughs> gifts for hikers. And I'm not going to get a lot yeah, of detail we don't have here, to. but there's a couple of good. It's ones. just a good. It's a good resource. So I mean, there's there's 22, and the ones that stood out to me personally, they 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 make these pee rags. So when you're on trail and you have to go, 
a P-Rag. I've never heard of those before. There were a couple others. Uh, Nick Wax popped up near the top. And uh, a standout, this is local, a local business called Burgeon, which is located up in Lincoln. They made it for a, a warm, hot weather hoodie that they made, basically for desert conditions. So congrats, uh, Burgeon, on that uh, plug. Yeah, I always see Eric Todd Sweet. He's wearing all their clothes and plugging them. So it looks like they've, they've got some good stuff. I just haven't picked any up. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's decent stuff for sure. And lastly, on this section here, uh, Fishing Game is hiring, apparently. So go to the Fishing Game website. We'll give you the link. So if anybody's looking for an occupation or a career in Fishing Game conservation, now might be your time. Mike, <laughs> move up to New Hampshire. I'm not ready for a career change. There you go. Yeah. yeah. Not, not yet, yet, but... Not yet, but... Uh, <laughs> All right, moving on to pop culture and miscellaneous stuff here. I found a video that I thought was an absolute okay. riot. There is a, um, it's happened in Connecticut this week. There was a mother and a daughter. The daughter was like leaving her house, and I'll, I'll put the video in the show notes. It's a rabid raccoon that attacks the daughter, and then the, so the, the girl's getting to, she's getting ready to walk out the door. She opens the front door. She's going to walk to her school bus. And a raccoon was rabid, hmm. grabs onto the girl's leg, and the girl immediately like screams. Like if you, I mean, you know what it is like when your daughters were little and they would get freaked out and scream. Like there is no noise when they would get rabid. That can be described. It's just a loud scream. So the mother comes running out in a panic. She grabs the raccoon, picks the her daughter up with her other arm, throws the daughter inside the house. She's got the raccoon, and then she talks to somebody off camera, and um, she just screams, it's a rabid raccoon, get in the house. So then she tries <laughs> to throw the raccoon, but the raccoon wouldn't let go of her hand, so she, she screwed up the first one. Then the second one, she just completely yeeted this thing like down the front yard and then ran inside. So it's just a, com- <laughs> it's a comical video, which I thought was funny. Animals are going nuts. But I was proud of mom. She protected her little one and she took care of business. <laughs> That's all it takes. That's what you got to do. Do you want to do this next one, Stomp? I, I think you're excited oh, about goodness. this topic. Cocaine beer. This came to me from, um, I think it was Johnny Appleseed who listens to us. I had seen a couple stories about it just in passing and I just didn't make the connection. I, I saw the original story about the bear that this bear got into a, a, a huge load of cocaine and just started attacking campers and backpackers and just going nuts. But apparently, according to this link, there's a movie coming out uh, to theaters this February. And I guess it's going to be like a schlock film, you know, just sort of tongue in cheek, making fun of it, the whole thing. But uh, yeah, keep a lookout. Cocaine beer is coming to a theater near you. Get the popcorn ready. Yeah, and it's not a... I mean, it's not a low-budget film. The The girl that starred in Felicity is starring in this film. Mm-hmm. So it's legit actors and actresses in this thing. Oh, I got, see, I got the impression that it was definitely going to be like a dark comedy. Yeah, I think, I think it is, but I think it'll be well-produced. Yeah. But it got me researching. So the whole story behind this is that there was a, like a, a drug thing that happened, and the, airplane, the guy was flying in an airplane, and he had to drop some drugs. Mm-hmm. And then... The bear found the drugs and got into it. But this story has happened a number of different times. Like there was a case where um, somebody had dropped like $10 million worth of drugs in, in an island called Sardinia a couple of years ago mm-hmm. in that movie Valley Uprising that talked about um, rock climbing culture in Yosemite 
There was a case in 1977 where drug dealers had dropped huge caches of, I think, marijuana that the, the climbers all found out about. And they climbed into these, like they had to bushwhack into these areas to get I got the it. drugs. And they were able to sell them and, you know, make enough money to live off of for a couple of years in Yosemite. So, yeah. so the bear got into it. It happens. The bear got into it. <laughs> oh, boy. And then sticking with Hollywood, um, the book Born to Run, which I did read, um, so this Born to Run book, as far as I can remember, this kicked off a like a barefoot running craze. It kicked off like the trail running culture. Oh, big time. It was sort of like the yeah, it was the book that inspired I think trail running and ultra running, and you know I think we've got a pretty well established sort of culture and competitive environment now. But back when this book came out, I think in the late. 2000s it was very niche thing and it it it, ran, it it basically resulted in like a new running boom so the book is called born to run and there's going to be a new movie where um matthew mcconaughey is going to be starring as this guy micah true uh caballo blanca white horse was his caballo name he was blanca. he was the the lead guy that was um living down in mexico with the I, I honestly forget the name of the tribe, but uh, it's a an ancient tribe that runs barefoot, and they run incredible distances. So, yeah, he's playing that lead role. And uh, as people may remember, Micah uh, passed away, unfortunately, in March of 2012. It was a cardiac event. Um, so this this will be interesting. There's no like set release date, but keep a lookout because Born to Run was a very cool book. It wasn't even, for me, it was not so much about the barefoot thing, but it was more about finding um, your form when you're running and really maximizing your form to prevent injury and overstressing your joints. And um, yeah, it was just really influential for me as a runner. Made life a lot easier running, to be honest with you, because running is not the most enjoyable thing if you're doing it wrong. Yeah, there was a nutritional aspect to that book too. There was like a a native diet that they they talked about. I can't remember the details. I think the tribe was Taramahu. I think it's coming to me now. Yeah, I think so. Uh, so yeah, great stuff. I don't even know who has my book. I gave it to somebody and it's missing in action. <laughs> yeah, I'll have to look. I may reread that. Um, but yeah. okay. And then the only other thing you have here, stop. Oh, you got a couple more. So the last of the last of us looks incredible. What is that? Last of us was a video game, but it's coming out on HBO in January. And it was, it's basically an apocalyptic, uh, you know, end of the world type of scenario. But uh, this is by the makers of Chernobyl, and um, it looks actually really good for like a, a video game remake. So I'm anxious about it. I can't wait to check it out and uh, yeah, see what's out there. Then of course, Harrison Ford's like on a friggin' roll. He's got Indiana 5 coming out in 1932. I don't know if anybody's watching Yellowstone, but it's pr- pretty enjoyable stuff. So he's coming out with Helen Moran and uh, that starts, um, I think in December. So a lot of stuff going on in pop culture. Very exciting. All right, and then the last thing here, Stomp, and let's see what Sarah's opinion is on this. So Sarah Stomp found this, like, (laughs) recipe. Oh, oh, Sarah's not going to like this. (laughs) She's not going to like this. I think she's going to be mad. Um, No, I'm just kidding. But he found this recipe for what he thinks is a good winter hiking snack. So I'm already, like, I'm thumbs down on this. So saltine toffee cookies. So... (laughs) 
It's something I could make. That's what's great about it. If it's any more complicated than this recipe, check me out. Nope, Mrs. Stump will back me up on that. It's four ounces of saltine crackers, a cup of butter, a cup of brown sugar, two cups of chocolate chips, and then three quarters of chopped pecans. Mm. Well, the pecans are keepers. Yeah, it looks like... It doesn't look healthy. I don't know, Sarah. What do you think? I mean, you're getting in some carbohydrate and sugar, which sugar is a carbohydrate. It's a simple carbohydrate. And there's fat in there and a little bit of protein. So from a macronutrient perspective, it's actually not terrible. Sort of balanced. Um, And when we're hiking, we need a lot of calories on trail, which we'll talk about. Um, So honestly, as a hiking snack, I would not nix this. You know, as long as we're getting in some other foods as well. Right. I see. I was thinking maybe like nutritional value. Like in particular, this is like this stands out to me as a winter snack where you where you need that fat for heat generation. So that's why it appealed to me. Like, wow, that's actually sort of a clever idea. Yeah, as long as they don't freeze. What do you mean? With winter hiking, I feel like nutrition is so much harder because our food just freezes on trail. So having choices that maybe don't freeze as easily. Okay, but you're not losing nutritional value if it freezes. No, absolutely not. Okay, okay, yeah, I was just curious. Cool. Yeah, and you know, that's something that people don't think about a lot of times, but in winter, you do have to be more careful. Like, I've probably pushed it a couple of times where I've had, like, cliff bars and, like, Milky Ways and stuff like that, and they're frozen, and I'm not so worried about, like, eating frozen stuff because it's fine if you can get a bite and let it melt in your mouth but I get concerned especially as I'm getting older like I don't want to crack a tooth or have some sort of a tooth situation going on when I'm out there on the trail because you know you are risking if you've got to like chomp on some frozen food it is dangerous out there yeah it'll just enhance your look Mike it'll be cool (laughs) my teeth aren't that great to start with so I don't want to damage them even worse (laughs) Oh, well. All right. So we have uh, one donation. Uh, What Donna Hamilton Photographs donated five coffees. Thank you, Donna. Super cool. Very much appreciated. All donations go towards the upkeep of the the website and the costs for having guests on and our podcast platform. So donations are cool. Thank you. All right. So welcome to episode 85 of the Sounds Like a Search and Rescue podcast. This week, we welcome Sarah LaCourse. Did I say that name correctly, last name? You, you did. All right, Sarah LaCourse. So Sarah is the host of her own excellent podcast called Pursuing Endurance Podcast. Um, she is a strength and conditioning coach and an expert in training, nutrition, and white mountains hiking. So if you're a hiker or trail runner looking for advice on getting stronger, eating better, or just looking to build a sustainable approach to hiking, settle in for a fun discussion with Sarah. And then later in the show, we will catch up on some recent search and rescue news. And then um, I pulled some New Hampshire slash White Mountains history tidbits that we'll go through. As I've been driving around New Hampshire, I've been like grabbing different like historical marker signs and, and adding them to my list to go over. So I pulled a couple of those. Um, so looking forward to talking about that. So I'm Mike. And I'm Stomp. Let's get started. All right, let's get started. So you got a couple of sponsors you want to throw in here, Stomp? Yeah, first at, at Reckless Brewing. Thank you so much, guys. Uh, great sponsor, supporting us for since day one, essentially. We'll enjoy the best food, craft beer, and fun. Just 15 minutes from Franconia Notch, many of the 4K f- footers, and less than 10 minutes from the infamous Five Corners, and then Spinner's Pizza. 
family-owned since 1994, specializing in hand-spun thin-crust Italian pizza, region's number one. So on your way home from the hike, just hit Dascom Road off Route 93 and say hi to Dolls and Pops and grab your sticker. Yeah, and you have to tell spinners, I'm sorry, I've been like putting the wrong link. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I put a link to a pizza place in New Jersey for them on the show notes. Can you imagine some people are showing up in New Jersey going, where's my sticker? Hey, hey, where's my sticker? <laughs> I went how many, I haven't even gone back to look. I went how many weeks I had that in the wrong link. No, that's Italian. Where's my sticker? <laughs> so sorry, spinners, we'll correct that link. Yeah. I promise. You'll be swimming with the fishes. All right, so this is the part of the show where we talk about beer. Yeah. Not the beer that can attack you, but the beer that you drink. Anything good, Mike? Are you on? I'm drinking Stoneface IPA. So we talked about Stoneface last week. Excellent. I've got um, one of my favorite local breweries now. I mean, if you consider Vermont local, but... um, it is the uh, Burlington Beer Company, and I'm enjoying a Stainless Forest Double India Pale Ale, which is absolutely delicious. This company's super cool, 8.2%. And uh, the graphics are always the eye catcher for me. It's super cool. That's mostly how I buy my beer, too, is I look at like the cool pictures on the the outside of the beer, and then that's how I pick. <laughs> right. <laughs> or if it matches the show topics. <laughs> Yeah, I am proud of you though, Stump, because I remember back when we started, you were like anti-IPA, and now you're mm, all about it. Well, I think that the difference was the double. Standard IPA, I'm still not very fond of, so double, triple, quadruple, quintess- quintessent IPA, just boost the number up, and I'm, I'm all in. All right, well, Sarah, I don't know, are you into drinking or not? Um, I like cider and wine. Um, I have some electrolytes tonight. Um, no, I can't drink beer. I can't do gluten. Oh, you can't. Got it. Mm. So does beer does beer by definition always have gluten in it? Unless it's a gluten-free beer, which some companies do have, um, but they're not really good in my humble opinion. Okay. So you just stick to the ciders and the wines? Yeah. Dry cider, red wine. That's my jam. Awesome. That works. That works. All right. So we're going to go over some recent hikes here, Stomp. So you, you had to bail on a hike? What, what happened here? Oh, I did. You know, I was just... Um, it was after that heavy-duty rainstorm. I keep on, I sound like a broken record. Like, oh, it just rained for two days straight. But it sort of wiped out the base that we were so excited about a week and a half ago. And it revealed um, this really thick layer of glare ice. So I wanted to just get some cardio and, and zip up Tecumseh, which is like my new fave at the moment. I lo- absolutely love it. The bang for the buck is just awesome. But the glare ice was so intense. I It was like two two things. I didn't want to ruin my 80 freaking dollar Catulas. And B, I just was not in the mood to rock hop the whole way up and down. So I was like, I'm out of here. By the second uh, river crossing, I, I bailed out. I'm like, nah, I'm good. So, yeah, pick your poison. I just like, nah. <laughs> yeah. Risk averse. I think I'm, I think I'm going to... And I understand the Cotula thing because I think I've worn, I've done a bunch of hiking like early season and then I did a bunch of hiking late season last year and I had like my rock spikes and then I had my good mm-hmm. spikes, but then they just got intermingled somehow. So I have two pairs yeah. and I was going up, I, I hiked up Musalaki, um, 
I, d- I just did one trip this week, and even on some of the ice, I was slipping, and I think that I'm using spikes that are just old or dull or whatever. Oh, sure. I don't know. Are they the, the micro spikes versus the crampons? They're the Catula micro spikes. That's all I use. I don't use the Hill Sounds, the thicker one. I have, if I need real crampons, I have Gravel G10s gotcha. that I'll use, but I barely ever use those. So I use the Catula micro spikes. I have two sets, and I was separating one, using it as like my rock right. spikes, and then the other was like only for winter, but. They got all intermingled, and now I don't know which is good and which is bad. Yeah, honestly, I think the wear time's probably all the same, but you just get more bang for the buck with those deep teeth with the um, hill sounds. Um, I have a pair of yeah. older uh, micro spikes as well, but um, I just didn't have them on that trip. I'm like, nah, I'm not going to kill my teeth on this. But it's a weird time of the yeah. year. Not It's it, like there's nothing for snow here at the moment. You know, Waterville Valley's blowing snow, but... World Sticky Loop is pretty much empty now again, so that that little bit of base that we were just starting to get is gone. It's really sort of a bummer. Yeah, I don't know. I so I had a wellness day at work on last mm-hmm. Friday, and my old college buddy Sean, he he's starting to get into the four thousand footer. So I think this was his seventh hike. So I met him at the Glencliff Trail. And he wanted to do Musalak. He's actually been talking about doing it for a couple of weeks, and the weather wasn't great. So I was like, I got the I got the day off. So we met uh, around nine o'clock, and then he brought his dog, Winston the Wonder Dog, which was an English Springer Spaniel. This dog was awesome. I haven't re- I haven't really hiked with a dog mm-hmm. before, so it was f- it was super fun for me. Um, but we had to put on spikes around three thousand feet, I would say, and then the last. You know how there's like, there's about an 800 foot climb. You go to like probably 3,600 feet up to 4,400 feet when you get to the South Peak Junction. And that's that gets yeah. steeper. And there was some sections of ice there where you definitely needed, you know, micro spikes. And it was like clear ice. And I was slipping a little bit even in my spikes, oh. but it made it up no problem. The dog was like amazing. Yeah. Um, so that was fun but he kept like running up the trail and then coming back to check on us so the dog probably hiked like three times the amount of miles we did <laughs> which was fun that's so cool dogs awesome on trail oh yeah. awesome awesome dog, and it was nobody around so the dog was off leash I don't know it's not my dog so I was just yeah. there um, but the dog did great he would come back on recall and the only issue the dog had really was he had a couple of times where snow would build up inside his paws, so he would come like limping back, and then we'd have to like rip the snow out of his paws, and then he was mm-hmm. fine. But um, I posted some pictures on the Instagram, and it was so much fun hiking with a dog. I, I want to do it again. <laughs> oh, it's super cool. Sarah, have you been out? Um, yeah, I went out on Sunday and hiked Hale uh, via the fire wardens trail and Mm. haystack road was still open as of that point so that was a nice little treat this time of year Mm. um but yeah conditions are all over the place it was a winter wonderland up top and frozen mud wet mud running water at the bottom and then yesterday ended up staying a little bit lower and hiking willard which you could have used ice skates on. That might yeah. have actually worked better than micro spikes. They were a little, it was hard to get traction. Mm. And then the sugar loaves off of Zealand Road, which you, do, you didn't need spikes on. 
Wow. So the stark difference between those just by how much traffic Willard gets and how much less the Sugarloafs get. But yeah, so it's been an interesting couple of days. And Zealand's closed, right? So you had to do right. the road walk. Yeah, Zealand is closed. Is it fair to say, like, if you if Haystack Road is open and you take the Fire Warden's Trail up to Hale, that's got to be the shortest, easiest 4,000 footer, do you think? So Fire Warden's, I think it was 6.5 miles, my watch said, from parking okay. at the North Twin Trailhead. Whereas if you were to take Hale Brook Trail, if Zealand Road was open, that would be shorter. But I think Fire Warden's is arguably easier. Yeah. So I would say it's a very steady climb. Fire Wardens or maybe Tecumseh from Triple I instead of the ski area or Wombeck. Those would probably be the easiest. Yeah. I have to do that whole area for my winter four thousand footer this year, so I'm thinking through my strategy. I talked a little bit about that on the last show, but it's good to know Haystack is still open. But it's it's definitely gonna be closed by the time winter comes. It might even be closed as of today. I have a friend in the Forest Service and it sounds like it might be closed now. So today is Tuesday, December 6th. Hmm. Well, speaking of closed roads, Mike, I just want to tell you this. I, I jogged up from Triple I Road uh, in Waterville to the um, Osceola mm-hmm. Trailhead. I was really proud of myself. It was like the first big jog. <laughs> like it was like I mean business with this Mount Washington thing, man. I hope we get in. I really do. But it was nice. Pushing it. It's like. Do you listen to music when you run stuff? I was listening to a podcast. Um, but it's funny, it's, you know, you know, I still have the, um, the mental will because of the consistent heavy pack hiking, but my body's yelling and screaming and my, my, my heart's screaming, but you know, you can work through that. And I was, I was actually really proud and like, man, I can pull this off. And again, I'm just, I'm strictly going uphill. I'm not running downhill because as people know, I have a hip replacement and my left hip is probably a couple years away from fading out, but I'm. Honestly, comparably between heavy pack hiking and what I did to get to the uh, Osceola Trailhead, it was comparable, if not easier. So I'm really encouraged that I'll be able to pull off this uh, run. I just want to do it one more time. <laughs> yeah, and I think honestly, like the Mount Washington Road Race, even if you power hike and you're, you're maintaining like, what, 15 to 16 sure. miles or something like that, like you, you finish within a reasonable amount of time. You know, you run the first two miles and then power Absolutely. Yeah, that's the trick. That's the dirty secret. <laughs> so. All right. So, Sarah, we're up to your segment here. Are you ready for your big moment? Sure am. It's time for Slasher's Guest of the Week. Very cool. Very cool. second here stomp's got a couple of sponsors he wants to throw in here sarah do you deal with back sweat (laughs) not really oh well you don't you don't sweat i glisten (laughs) just in case you do you're not working hard enough (laughs) sorry (laughs) back sweat sucks so let me tell you about it in all types of weather and hikes not only is it uncomfortable sweat is a risk factor 
causing your core temperature to fluctuate if it doesn't evaporate off your back. Check out Vaucluse's Cool Dry Backpack Airflow Frame, a backpack accessory that installs on your favorite pack, size 18 liter to 65 liter, and creates an airflow gap between you and your pack. Whether you're in hot or cold temps, even if you have a pack with a curved frame, the Cool Dry Frame is a real game changer. So visit vaucluseGear.com. Link will be in the show notes to order your pack today. And then Fieldstone Kombucha, New England's premier craft kombucha, Mike's favorite, ships to New Hampshire. Check out Fieldstone Kombucha online for delicious seasonal flavors and a kombucha style beloved of skeptics and enthusiasts alike. The perfect non-alcoholic post-hike drink. Shipping available for retail and wholesale. Catch them at the Tuscan Tuscan Village. I always want to say Tucson, but Tuscan Village Holiday Market in Salem, New Hampshire from December 8th to 11th. Um, Or you can visit them at fieldstonekombuchaco.com. All right, let's get to it. So, Snob, me and Sarah ran into each other on the trail like back in May of 2021. Right after we had started the show, I I ran into you on Mount Field or Willie? I can't remember. Field, yep. And I can't remember, we were talking about a backpack. I can't remember if I had just bought a backpack and you were asking about it or if you had a backpack and I was asking you about it. I can't remember. (laughs) I can't remember either. I want to say it might have been me. I was with my friend Katie and we had the Ultimate Direction Fast Packs on. So I feel like it might have been you asking us, but I do not remember either. Yeah, that would make sense because I had I had my um, I'm very sentimental about my gear, so I had a like a Duder day pack that I was very like I finished the four thousand footers with it, and I was like I'm never gonna I'm never gonna get rid of it, and then I had finally decided I was gonna get this Ultimate Direction Fast Pack. So I think you had it, so I might have just asked you about it, and then Stomp. It was very the early days of the podcast, so I like felt kind of douchey, but I also was like I'm just gonna put a plug in, and then she was like Oh, I think I've heard of your show. And I was like, oh my God, I'm so excited. <laughs> That's so funny. Uh, it's the favorite yeah. drop. Hey, you know who I am. <laughs> hey, I host a podcast. <laughs> Too funny. Anyway, but um, but Sarah, why don't you introduce yourself, give a little bit of background, talk a little bit about your work, talk about your connection to hiking, and then uh, you also host a podcast, so maybe talk a little bit about um, the you know your podcast as well. Yeah, absolutely. So, hi, I'm Sarah LaCourse. Hi. I am a... Hi. <laughs> I'm a certified personal trainer and certified sports nutritionist. And so I work one-on-one with clients doing personal training in the Mount Washington Valley area. And then I primarily work virtually with mainly mountain endurance athletes and enthusiasts around strength training and sports nutrition. And... I love it. It's so great to be able to kind of work with individuals that are very similar to myself and their hobbies. And outside of work, I really enjoy hiking, obviously, and I'm a big fan of weightlifting. I've been lifting since I was 15, 16 years old, and I also really love writing and podcasting. And so my podcast is the Pursuing Endurance Podcast where we have conversations around strength and sports nutrition, really, again, around mountain endurance activities and also eating disorder recovery and entrepreneurship. So it is a mixed bag type of podcast. 
Great. And did you get into this like um, through college or did this is something you picked up later on in life? Can you talk about how you got interested in this? Yeah. So I in college, I studied neuroscience and psychology and then I minored in nutrition, which was primarily sports nutrition. Um, and then kind of I would say getting me into the field that I'm working in now has been a kind of combination of factors. I developed an eating disorder when I was 11. And so that whole experience and going into recovery when I was 20, 21 years old. And so I've now been in remission for about almost 10 years. It'll be 10 years in May. So pats on back. And then I grew up competing nationally in jump rope and was involved in different sports growing up and then getting into lifting becoming a personal trainer, working with a personal trainer. So it's just all of these different factors have really come together to give me this very comprehensive outlook on how I then approach coaching. Interesting. And then at a high level, um, you know, with your background, I guess the first thing I'm curious about is there's two things actually out of this that I do want to talk about is one is so you basically spent your formidable years growing up with an eating disorder um can you talk i think there's a lot of us like i have three daughters and you know i you know i I don't know i haven't had to deal with it personally but i do know that a lot of their friends and a lot of you know family members outside of our direct family have had eating disorder challenges um that they've had to deal with can you talk a little bit about um I guess the approach if you have somebody in your family or a loved one or even if you're personally struggling yourself, where do you start as far as um, trying to move towards a path of recovery from eating disorder? Yeah, I think the first thing that's going to come into play is the individual's age, of course. So if they're under 18, especially if they're in early adolescence, obviously the parents are going to have a lot more kind of interplay in the treatment options versus if somebody is over 18 or even into mid or later adulthood, um, because eating disorders really do affect individuals, male and female, of the entire age range. And I think they're often thought of as something that younger girls deal with. And while they do, it is definitely many more people outside of that population as well. And so I would say the first thing is that an individual really does need to be ready to work on this and getting past this and finding a path to recovery and healing. However, you know, providing support while they're not in that space is essential and can move them into that space. So providing somebody with maybe a therapist or a support group and really working on language if you're somebody, a friend or family that is um, that knows somebody with an eating disorder. So to really not talk about body image, calories, things that could be triggering, things of that nature could be helpful just to help them not uh, move backwards or to trigger them. And then as somebody moves into recovery and is, you know, getting the tools, learning the tools to help themselves and move along this path of healing, knowing that from the outside, so from friends and family, that it's not an overnight thing, it's not even a year thing, and that even though they might quote unquote look healthy and look better, that it is really a lifelong journey and just to know that that's part of their experience and that's not a bad thing and it's not something to look down on, but it's, yeah, it's part of their human experience and so their outlook might be a little bit different. Interesting, yeah. And I know it's a a very 
common issue, and I don't think that it's it's not one of those issues where people are, I think, as comfortable talking about it. And maybe it's gotten a little bit better over the years, but I still sort of feel like it's it's very often something that you're not supposed to talk about. Um, and I don't know, maybe that's a good thing is, you know, you don't want to, well, obviously, like, you know, I would never say anything to somebody that wasn't directly in, in my family, but it's still something that, you know, I think a lot of people struggle with. And they, I would imagine that if you're a parent of a child that's struggling with that and you've never dealt with it yourself, like you don't even know where to start. Absolutely. And I think that too, with the pandemic and the last couple of years, eating disorders and other mental health issues are becoming more and more prevalent. So having a better understanding and being open to conversations around it is really essential for anybody that is dealing with it or their friends and family. Yeah, exactly. So just moving on to another topic here, just, and I know that there's never a one size fits all when you're talking about training and strength and nutrition, but at a very high level, can you give us like a basic strategy for a baseline nutrition? You know, what are some of the best practices you recommend for people just in general, if they want to start sort of transitioning into being a little bit more thoughtful about their nutrition? Yeah. So the first thing I would say is to just really take a step back and become aware around the way that you're feeding or fueling your body. And so how are you eating when you're in your day-to-day life? How are you eating on trail or during other activities before, during, and after activity to really provide your body with the nutrients that it needs? So really just, again, taking a step back and seeing what your baseline is at now and not judging yourself for it, not creating any like, I need to do this, I need to do that. And just looking at it comprehensively and asking, what's working for me? What do I think is not working for me? And then taking baby steps to maybe change that if it needs to be changed at all. And in general, kind of the bigger factors that I look at with individuals or kind of the top quote unquote mistakes that I see clients make is that they're not eating enough calories in general across the board on a day-to-day basis. And then if we are looking specifically at somebody who's doing these higher level endurance pursuits, I know that's kind of probably the audience, right, that we're working with here. Um, They're not eating or fueling before, during and after. So pre, intra and post activity appropriately. So we might be seeing things such as fatigue, bonking, low blood sugar, headaches, nausea, not recovering well, all of that. Um, so really just kind of (laughs) other guests have said that. Yeah. So taking a look at that and making sure we're giving the body what it needs, because Mm -hmm. it's like, you don't, you don't let your car run on empty. Right. So we don't want our bodies to run on empty either. Absolutely. Yeah, that makes sense. And then are there any sort of strategies that you say for, you know, men, women, certain age around supplements and vitamins? Like I know I've always like sort of I've gone back and forth. Like sometimes my doctor will be like, you got to have a multivitamin and then vitamin D was a big thing. Like, can, can you give your thoughts around like what the baseline is for supplements or vitamins you think people should be taking or is that just so individual that you can't recommend it's so individual and I always say on my own podcast I don't know you Um, but I can give kind of some general guidance (laughs) Um, so as a sports nutritionist I always say let's look at your diet first and by diet I mean diet as a noun so the way that you eat not diet as a verb so not being on a diet just how you eat as a human and let's look at getting in enough macronutrients, so carbohydrates, proteins, and fats, and then micronutrients, so vitamins and minerals first from your overall diet and from food. And then if we 
maybe you're struggling to get enough protein. That's a big one. For example, maybe supplementing with a protein powder or protein bars. And then another big one I see, especially for endurance athletes and enthusiasts, is to supplement with electrolytes, especially in the summer season when it's more hot and humid, or even in the winter because we are sweating enough to really still need to utilize those. Makes sense. And then um, just switching up to, you know, the the other thing I wanted to ask you is sort of the, the balance between strength training and cardio. So we'll talk about this later, but like I'm a cardio junkie. I hate strength training, but from your perspective, you know, is it uh, is it a balance between the two? Is strength more important than cardio? Can you can you talk about your your views or, or what the science says about that? Yeah, so um, it depends um, really on the individual and their goals. But I'll speak on a couple of things. The first is if you're somebody who, like yourself, is a cardio junkie, I would say you could benefit from some strength training just to provide your body with more um, tools to be able to then perform well in your endurance training. So really strengthening your body in different planes of motion and different movement patterns can be helpful to prevent injury, Mm -hmm. for example. And then, you know, if you're somebody who is wanting to focus on strength and nutrition or not strength and nutrition, strength and endurance equally, you might want to take like a seasonal approach to training. So, for example, if you're doing more endurance output activity in the summer months, focusing on that in the summer more and reducing strength versus in the winter, you would increase strength and reduce endurance. Just for example. Got it. Yeah. And I have actually... um I have been going to these, so my wife is more of a, like a strength training person. So she has this, like Jill, hello, Jill, if you listen to the show, I think she might listen. My wife has a group of friends that they all work at a private trainer and we do like an hour session where, you know, they'll make you do planks and we do burpees and we do like the ropes, those heavy rope things that you have to do. And then we do boxing trainings and we have to do the planks and I can't do the planks for like more than a minute or so. But I have been trying, but I really honestly, I hate it. Don't, I hope Jill's not listening, but like I hate the strength training. It's so hard, but it is like, I think it's, it, it is helping though. I'm just so weak in my upper body. It's ridiculous. But you'll gain strength. You just have to work on it. Yeah, I know. It's just so much easier to just go running for five miles and say, I did something. I know. I get that. Yeah. Yeah, Anyway. Um, But Sarah, so just switching over to your hiking, can you talk a little bit about when did you get into hiking? Um, Can you talk a little bit about um, sort of your focus? Are you a lift list person? Um, You know, winter hiking? Can you can you just give us a little bit of background in that area? Um, Yeah, I got into hiking really in 2016. However, I grew up camping, um, going hiking on small hikes. Actually, Willard, I think, was my first hike, either that or Black Cat Mountain in my early childhood years. And then a friend had asked me to go on a hike with her back in 2016 in July, uh, Liberty and Flume, actually. And so I went on that not really knowing anything about the 4,000 footers, anything about hiking. I just babysat for her family and she was in her 40s. I was early 20s and I was like, yeah, great. I can handle that. And I got hooked. And the weekend after I ended up hiking Willie, Tom and Field with my friend Amanda and she was working on her 4,000 footers. But at that point, again, I had no idea what they were and I just loved hiking and it was so helpful for me to be outside and in that kind of outdoor environment. 
And so I slowly just began doing these hikes and then I learned what the 4,000 footers were. And I remember looking at the bonds and Owl's Head and thinking, there's absolutely no way that I can hike 20 miles in a single day. That's absolutely ridiculous. Like my legs are going to fall off. And here I've done them multiple times now, which is just incredible and humbling. And in terms of the list, so I've completed the 48 multiple times. um, And I'm hoping to finish my winter 48 this year. I have the long and high ones or long and tall ones left, if you will. And so Northern Prezies, Bonds, Owl's Head, things of that nature. But I'm looking to finish that this year and have been four season hiking since July of 2016. And I'm kind of casually gritting, as I like to put it. So I have my Excel sheet. I've tracked it all. But for me, hiking needs to be fun. It needs to be enjoyable. I love going out with folks. I live alone. I work from home primarily. So going out on solo days is not really my jam. And I love good weather because I can always shift around my work schedule to work on the rainy, crappy days and hike on the good days. (laughs) So that's my MO. Um, But yeah, I finished (laughs) June and November so far, which November is entertaining to me because it's not the best month to hike. And then, yeah, June, June of 2020, my friend Jess and I actually took it upon ourselves to hike all of the 48 in a single month because we needed something to take our minds off of the pandemic so that finished june out pretty quickly um but yeah that's kind of my hiking background and accolades great do you do you focus mostly on four thousand footers or have you done like the 52 with a view list or anything up in like maine or anything like that i have not done any hikes in maine yet none of the four thousand footers at least and i've hiked killington in vermont and then i've hiked about maybe half or two-thirds of the 52 with a view so kind of working on that have hiked all of the bell naps i love the bell naps actually in the shoulder season because they're usually melted out or don't have snow yet and otherwise yeah four thousand footers or i live in the mount washington valley so a bunch of just smaller hikes that are not on any lists around here Got it. No, I'm curious because eventually I want to move to that area or maybe even on the other side where Stop lives. But when you wake up and you're like, all right, I want to go hiking, like, do you just choose that day, like where you're going or do you pick the night before or how do you decide what, what mountains you're going to? Um, if it's something bigger or a day that I want to focus on a grid peak, then I'll usually pick the day before or a couple days before or even just have a great weather hike option or a not ideal weather hike option and then in terms of smaller things I have a list that I really love for my local hikes so Boulder Loop is a great one or hiking up to Champney Falls and just the falls not going any further than that or sometimes hit Middle Sister Hedgehog is another good one so kind of depends on the style of hike if you will what I when I decide and how I decide got it yeah I uh I always was kind of curious about that. Like if you have the luxury to like live right in the middle of the mountains, you can just basically wake up in the morning and and pick pick your poison, which is nice. Yeah, it's nice not having the drive. I used to live in Newmarket until October of 19, and I do not miss the two hours-ish of driving back and forth. Yeah, I find that like the Ossipies and the Sandwich Range right now for me, when I so when my father-in-law shuts his place down in Maine, 
those are the Auspies and the sandwich range are nice for me because it's just, you know, an hour and 15 minutes, hour and 20 minutes up from the seacoast area. It's a little bit easier than, you know, the longer drives on the 93 side. But, um, yeah, I'm jealous. I wish I didn't have those drives. And do you have a favorite hike, favorite mountain that you, you, um, you'd like to go to? Oh gosh. Um, in terms of the 4,000 footers, I would say my favorite mountain is West Bond, although I also really love isolation. And non-4,000 footers, I really love the sugar loaves, <laughs> honestly. They're so beautiful, and it's such a short hike. Yeah, I agree. I think the sugar loaves are the best foliage hike in the whites, just because you're sort of dropped into the foliage. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, um, and then... When it comes to winter hiking, um, you know, we've been sort of touching on winter hiking and safety. Um, Your gear choices, do you tend to stay with your sort of trail running gear or do you go with heavier gear in the winter? Can you talk a little bit about, you know, your your view on going light versus heavy, you know, depending on the weather and the conditions? Yeah, like you said, depending on weather and conditions, it definitely depends. And also depending on the hike, if I'm doing something such as Willard or the Sugarloaves or Boulder Loops, one of these smaller ones that I really know and have done probably over 15 times, I will usually take trail running gear. So my little Solomon pack that is, I think, a 12 liter, although it definitely holds more than that. And like a waterproof mid shoe that's not insulated. But I will not do that if the weather is not appropriate for that. So it really does depend. And then when I'm working on like the 4,000 footers, Definitely being in insulated boots, usually unless it's, you know, springtime shoulder season where the temperature is higher, but carrying the gear that if something happens, I'll be okay. Hopefully. Well, and then do you typically, so you don't, you don't do solo hiking. You typically hike with friends or how do, how do you generally manage that? Yeah, I tend to hike with friends. I have a bunch of different people that I hike with and everybody has different availability, which works out nicely. Um, I do enjoy solo hiking, but again, like I said, living alone, working from home, I get a lot of solo time. So I do enjoy the social aspect of getting out with friends. I do typically go one-on-one or like a maximum of three people is definitely my preferred, but solo hiking is also nice for that kind of getting into my intuition, which is helpful from a business perspective, if you will. So it's a mix. Makes sense. And then, um, so we've had a gentleman on the show, Martin Pisani, who's a friend of mine and Stomps, who his, um, you know, he, he's brought to us a lot of advice and uh, perspective on this idea of, you know, basically maintaining an active lifestyle well into your older years. And I've tried to sort of model that a little bit with what I've done over the years. Like I used to be much more competitive with triathlons and marathons. And what I found was that I would, I would chronically overtrain and I would get injuries and then I wouldn't be able to do the things I used I love to do, you know, cycling and hiking and stuff like that. So I've dialed back my intensity of my workouts as far as running goes to limit the amount of injuries that I deal with, with the idea that I want to stay mobile and, um, you know, active well into my retirement year, 70, 80, 90 years old. Um, and I think that 
when I'm reading on some of your, you know, your website and things like that, I think that's a similar goal where you're looking at this from the long term, but you're you're focusing more on strength training maybe than um, just using hiking as the as the the main path for getting to that goal. But can you talk a little bit about your perspective on how you manage sort of active lifestyle for the long term? Absolutely. So with coaching, I take a very holistic, so whole body, whole person approach. And my goal is always to create long-term sustainable habits and really focus on that long game. So again, that mentality that we're able to do these things, whether it be strength, endurance, long-term throughout our life. And of course, depending on the season or age or health factors, other factors, we might need to take a season off or there's going to be changes. But overall, we're still able to participate in these activities that we find so much enjoyment in throughout our life. And so finding a way to create these sustainable habits and not fall into the traps of overtraining or overreaching and then getting injured and having to take that pause. And of course, injuries can happen like fluke injuries, but overall really trying to approach these activities of strength and endurance sustainably long-term. Got it. And then the physical fitness industry overall, I think can be intimidating, you know, some people are just sort of like, I don't want to go to a gym or I don't want to work with a trainer because I don't know where to start and they're going to judge me. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, people that are just getting right off the couch into a healthy lifestyle or talk a little bit about your perspective on how you flip that switch to get people to just sort of start saying like, I really want to get focused on my health and wellness. Okay, so yeah, really kind of looking at that long game approach and being able to use those little wins that we're getting to be able to motivate us further. Because when we're first getting into something, whether it be hiking, whether it be trail running, whether it be strength training, we're completely new to it. And so approaching it with any type of mentality of I'm going to be here in a month or I'm going to be here in six months isn't super sustainable and really just letting ourselves enjoy the process as cliche as that sounds and using this whole process as just this giant learning curve and being really gentle with ourselves throughout it can be so helpful and I would also say I really like the concept of habit stacking so what habit stacking is for anybody that hasn't heard of this is using a habit that you currently have really ingrained that is just part of your daily routine and then putting on top of that so before or after a task or something that you would like to make a habit so that it is easier to do. So for example, when you shower at night, once you get out of the shower and you're in your pajamas, taking out your clothes the next day for your hike and getting everything together if you're new to hiking. That way in the morning, you don't have to have those decisions because we have so many decisions throughout the day that we have to make. So if we can reduce the amount of decisions and reduce that decision fatigue, that can help us really start to create new habits that then can become long-term sustainable habits. Got it. That makes sense. And then um, as far as people that, you know, are just starting off, like what do you typically recommend for them? I'm assuming that it's just, you know, get moving and get comfortable with, um, you know, being more consistent about either strength or or cardio workouts on a daily basis. Do you typically tell people like, you know, you're going to have to work out every day for a short period of time? Or do you just say like, hey, let's do three days a week? 
I usually try to meet individuals where they're at. So depending on their schedule, depending on their background or training history, if they've done sports before or activities, really trying to see what is actually going to be sustainable for this individual. Because if I tell somebody that has literally no background in any type of training or activity, hey, let's train five days a week. Maybe they'll do it for a week. Maybe not. It's not going to work for them. However, if you have somebody that has more of a background, say they've done a marathon before or have done some hiking or some strength training, but their schedule is super busy, say they're a doctor or somebody that works 50 plus hours a week, again, five days a week might not be sustainable. Hey, let's try to do three. And so really meeting somebody where they're at and there isn't anything good or bad about training two days a week or there isn't anything good or bad about training five plus days a week, as long as that's sustainable for you and healthy for your body, of course. And really then balancing out strength and endurance, depending on your overall goals. Got it. And then um, going back to fueling when you actually are out on a hike, like I'm terrible about this. Like I, you know, I was training for Boston Marathon qualifying time one time and I like just blew off all my eating and I blew up at 20 miles when I easily would have qualified. But I just I didn't I cramped up. I've done triathlons where I haven't eaten and fueled. I've done long cycling training, the century rides and stuff like that where I haven't fueled and I've cramped up. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, how do you mentally get people to accept that they need to focus on fueling when they're when they're out there? I mean, I think kind of what you just said, part of it is experience and experiencing the negatives of not fueling properly. And so that's one example if somebody has had that experience. If somebody has not had that experience, trying to just educate as much as possible in a very simple manner because nutrition can become very overwhelming for individuals, especially if they don't have any type of background in it. And I would say some of kind of the easier fueling tips that I could provide somebody with, especially for these longer days, whether they be hiking or running, would be really focusing on getting a mix of the macronutrients, carbohydrates, proteins, and fats, especially for longer-term endurance events or activities, and also minimizing fiber intake because that can create a lot of gastrointestinal distress, possibly nausea, cramping, not ideal, and really focusing on also using smaller days to trial what your body can tolerate the best. And that way, if you do go out on a longer day, you're not bonking, cramping, getting nausea, getting gastrointestinal distress, because you hopefully have figured out on smaller days what actually works for your body, because everybody is going to be different. Yeah. And Sarah, like, I I don't want to this me and Stomp have some personal issues, but like I will say, like when I noticed we went hiking a week or two ago, like he does never he never stops. Like I wanted to stop and eat, but he wouldn't stop going, and I felt like intimidated to be like, "Hey, Stomp, I need to fuel up." He was like all business, and I was like, uh, and I was with Jimmy Chaga and Stomp, and I just felt like I was. I was embarrassed to like say like, hey, I need to stop and eat something because Stomp is just on the move all the time. So how do you deal with those group dynamics where you got to put your hiking partners in check? I mean, I just tell them usually. No, I'm just kidding. It depends. (laughs) He's intimidating. Um, (laughs) Look at him. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It totally depends. I would say... (laughs) The Stomp machine. (laughs) 
I would say it's easier <sighs> in a one-on-one dynamic or like a smaller group <laughs> setting where you're able to, or you know those humans more and you're able to say, hey, I need to actually do this for myself because honestly, fueling our body is legit safety on trail because especially in the colder season where there's way less room for error, but also it can become a huge factor in the summer as well with that heat and humidity if we're not feeding and fueling and hydrating appropriately. And so being able to know that and speak up for yourself. And if you're somebody that can eat while moving, that's great. Maybe there's certain foods that you can eat easier while moving or perhaps packing snacks that are higher in calories so that if you don't want to take a long break, whether it be you're intimidated by your hiking partner or it's really cold and you just cannot take that long of a break, being able to get in more calories with fewer bites, less chewing is definitely possibly convenient. Yeah, this guy never stops moving. I'm like, stop, can we take a break? Like, let's, what's going on here? Like, let's chill. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I think it's because I was partially wet. So I wanted to keep on moving because my, my underlayer, my mid-layer was a little damp. I'm like, let's keep keep motoring, guys. Let's go. Guys, all business. <laughs> no views, all business. All right, so Sarah, so we've got you... We've got you as a captive audience, and we're both super cheap, so we don't want to pay for your services right away, but maybe we will in the future. But I thought that this would be fun if you could give us, I will give you a couple of use cases, and you just sort of give us advice. So Stomp wants to get back into running. He talked about this, so he wants to train for the Mount Washington Road Race. So Stomp's background, I'll talk for him because he doesn't need to talk. He's got a hip replacement. He's a hiking machine, but he's been out of running for a while. He's not afraid of strength training because he's a boxer. And what else am I missing, Stomp? Super handsome. Yeah. <laughs> okay, super handsome. But how, how are we going to get Stomp back into, into like fighting mode for the Mount Washington road race? Yeah, I would say, you know, especially for hip issues, let's focus He's on the strengthening. Okay, we're going to get into all of it. Let me know if I miss anything. Uh, yeah, I and so for for hip issues, I actually have hip dysplasia, <laughs> so I can speak strongly to this one. And that's that was my problem. Right? Everybody's always like, don't dogs have that? Yes, <laughs> they do. So do humans. <laughs> well, may I ask? I mean, it's not appropriate in most situations, but what's your age? <laughs> I almost want to make you guess. I'll ask it anyway. <laughs> Stomp. No time out. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You can't. I'm in human resources. You cannot ask that question. No. <laughs> okay. Well, here's the deal. I'll give you permission, but you have to guess first. <laughs> no, dude, that's just All right, a I'll guess. recipe. Uh, for- <laughs> I wouldn't even guess, but I discovered mine when I was 45 and it was too late. Yeah. Ugh. So hip dysplasia is a monster. It's it's it can devastate your hips. It's rough. Yeah, they suspected it when I was an infant, but the testing wasn't as thorough then. And then I ended up stress fracturing my sacrum when I was, I think, in eighth grade, which is very hard to do. But combination of an eating disorder during developmental years and then hip dysplasia just creates a lovely time. But yeah, hip dysplasia is tough. Oh yeah, yeah, it's not a joke. I mean, you're lucky that you caught it early. I mean, to catch it in your 40s is like, that's a bummer. But anyway, back to the case study. Yeah. Um, but in terms of your scenario, let's get to this. Yes. Um, so hip, 
Uh, hip strengthening is definitely going to be super important in all of the muscles that support the hips. So really quads, um, hamstrings, glutes, also core muscles. Everybody thinks of core as, uh, do you have a six pack? No, there's actually really deep core muscles and also having a really strong pelvic floor as well. So focusing on strengthening all of those areas mm-hmm. in multiple planes of motion and in multiple movement patterns. So I'm always talking with folks on movement patterns being pushing, pulling, squatting, hinging and carrying. And I think that really looking at movement in this kind of larger perspective can be helpful. It's not just doing push-ups, just doing squats. It's not just um, doing like glute bridges, for example, to focus on like hip and glute strength, but doing all of these different things to really strengthen your body as a whole. And so I promote that for everybody in general, especially individuals, individuals with hip issues that have goals. Um, around hiking and running. And then I would say in terms of like, you know, weight loss, I am definitely not somebody that really coaches on weight loss. It's just not my scope of practice. But I always would promote just really focusing on the way that you're fueling your body in general, day to day and around activity and trying to make choices that are going to really work with your body long term and help you feel your best both day to day and during activity and recover from activity so that you're able to keep getting out there and feel good just on a whole. And also the way that you're performing is definitely super important. All right, stomp. So Mike's turn. Yeah, well, well, let's keep on going on you. But anyway, so for me, I feel like, Sarah, I represent like a very common scenario that I think our listeners like. I've sort of gone through my life feeling like if I run 20 to 30 miles a week or I, you know, run or hike 20, 30 miles a week, I can basically do whatever the hell I want when it comes to eating because I put in my work and now I can eat whatever the hell I want. So I have a bunch of bad habits. So first of all, I tend to skip breakfast during the week when I'm working. Um, And then I'll have a, you know, I'll have a pretty standard lunch. And then I pig out during dinner. And then I'll also like eight o'clock comes around and I'm eating my pretzels in bed before I go to bed. And then, you know, I'll get up in the morning and run again. But And I'm working on the strength training. But can you talk a little bit about sort of the cadence of how you should be eating across the day? Because I feel like I've read that, um, you know, breakfast is super important and that sort of limiting the window when you eat and not eating like right before dinner, especially spiking like your your glucose levels and things like that with a lot of carbs at night. But can you talk a little bit about like how I get my, how, how can I get my act together and get rid of these bad habits? So yeah, nutrition is super nuanced and there are so many articles and sources out there which are complete BS in my humble opinion. And mm-hmm. that also makes it really confusing for folks because yep. they don't know what to believe, what not to believe, what to turn to, what to follow, etc. And so with nutrition, like I said, it's super nuanced. Everybody is going to be different. Some individuals that I work with, they are four four meals a day and that does it for them. Some are three meals and three snacks. The list goes on and on. The main things that I would want to focus on is, again, getting in enough food daily so that you're not feeling any symptoms of undereating, which could be headache, nausea, fatigue, low blood sugar, etc. Also, getting in enough food, calories, energy, 
during and around training to be able to support your body to do the thing that you want to do both before and during and then recover from it after so that we can keep doing it. And in terms of things such as, like you said, eating before dinner or like eating before bed and kind of snacking, stuff like that, I would say if you're hungry, you're hungry and your body's telling you something. And that is something that I think society puts a lot of messaging around, which just isn't healthy and we can get really hard on ourselves for it. But again, taking a step back and being able to ask yourself, like, am I actually hungry? Am I stressed? Because sometimes stress can really, you know, want us to snack on foods. I'll sometimes on a super stressed day be like just munching on tortilla chips because it's crunchy and that is Mm -hmm. totally a thing. But I also think that if that's what you need in that moment, that's not a bad thing. It's just being able to recognize it and say, hey, I'm doing this because of this. Great. I'm making note of this. How can I maybe then approach my stress in other healthier or like more different ways, if you will? Because honestly, that eating tortilla chips isn't inherently unhealthy. It just maybe yeah. there's a different way as well. Um, but yeah, so really looking at day to day overall, getting in enough food, getting in a variety of macronutrients, which again are carbohydrates, proteins and fats, which all have different uses and importance for the body and then micronutrients, vitamins and minerals to be able to support our body because we do have these needs for those and also not stressing a ton or feeling bad about the way that we're like feeding ourselves. Got it. So what I'm hearing is that a lot of the assumptions that we hear and a lot of these things that like, you know, I'll pick it up listening to a different podcast or I'll pick it up listening to uh, or reading different magazine articles or whatever. And I think what I'm hearing from you is that there's no one size fits all. Sometimes if you're hungry, you just got to eat and, you know, don't don't beat yourself up too badly i mean at the end of the day i am still doing like 20 30 miles a week which Mm -hmm. is that's not nothing right yeah and i think i mean my perspective from a coaching standpoint is definitely influenced by my like almost 10 year battle with anorexia and Mm -hmm. that is definitely something but also i almost i try to not take that for granted because i think that that really allows me to have a very I don't love the word healthy, but I'm going to use it. Healthy relationship with the clients that I work with because I can really take a step back and see them as a human and see that they're struggling with certain things, see that they're confused, see that they're being you know, influenced by diet culture, fitness culture, and society. And so I do love that I have that experience to be able to take from and then add that to my actual like, educational background. But yeah, being less hard on ourselves is definitely a number one and... I think that it's just something that's a really, again, nuanced thing, nutrition as a whole. And it is a very, again, long game approach to figuring out what actually works for us. Um, Yeah. Oh, and then one thing you had mentioned about like doing like longer days. I think that some folks can have the mentality of, oh, well, I'm just doing these long days so I can just eat whatever. Or also, I... I'm doing these long days and I'll just have like a snack here and there throughout it. But then like, I'll just like go pig out after, or I'll just like go eat multiple burgers and have beers. That might not be the best approach for your overall like performance and recovery and like feeling good throughout the activity. Got it. Yeah. And a lot of times like I'll catch myself if I'm doing like a 10 or 12 mile hike, I'll be like, all right, well, and you know, I did good in the beginning and I, you know, I had a meal before I got on trail and I ate lunch or whatever, but I got four or five miles left and I'd probably be better off having, you know, stopping for 10, 15 minutes 
having that, you know, refueling and then, but a lot of times like I'll catch myself and be like, I'll just, I'll just bang out the next four miles and I'll be fine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's easy as you get into those later miles to think, oh, well, I'm almost done. I'm going downhill. I think as a general practice, especially on longer days, I really do encourage folks to aim for getting in like 150 to 300 calories. That's an average. It could be more especially on really long pushes or pushes with high effort um, calories per hour. And so I'll generally try to eat something every hour or every three miles. That's kind of my general rule of thumb for myself okay. and a lot of my clients. Got it. All right. And we got to make, we got to normalize like stopping on the way out on Lincoln Wood stomp and having like our final snack before we get to the car. <laughs> He's like, I'm not a fan of Sarah right now. <laughs> the yeah, the yeah. final leg? No, my, see, my approach, my approach is to avoid, absolutely avoid carbs throughout the entire day because it just crashes. I crash. So it's just the insulin effect. So I will limit it to just like like the nuts, tuna, protein, that type of thing to, to go. But at the very end of the day, I'm not really thinking much about anything that I'm eating. I'm thinking about more or less hydrating or rehydrating at the very end of the day. But during the day, I have a really complicated history with food. I have a lot of food allergies myself, Sarah. And uh, I'm 53, and I've just sort of dialed it in as to what works for me now. And um, I, I had a lot of success with the whole uh, intermittent thing, just like spacing it out, having a light to moderate meal towards the end of the day. And um, it, it changed my life. It's like... It worked for me. So um, very interesting, complicated. I don't think it's worth getting into now. But uh, speaking about nuance, that led me into a question I had for you. What's your take on the whole uh, national food pyramid? Because I look at that and I go, oh, my God, if, if diet has to be nuanced, how the heck can people apply this pyramid that they got going on right now? It's totally upside down, it seems. Nobody come at me that's a registered dietitian, but this is one of the reasons I didn't become a registered dietitian or go through like a dietetics program. Um, I actually started a master's of science in nutrition, which side note, I'm glad I didn't continue because it would have been during COVID and it just wasn't the right program. Anyways, mm. oh, I think that it depends, which is just my large answer because again, I don't know all of everybody listening. I don't know you personally, Stomp, and everything that's going on for you. But I think yeah. that really, again, focusing on different macronutrients and seeing what works for you over time and not really looking at, yeah. okay, this is like the general recommendation. However, also most science is based on men, not women. So that's mm -hmm. like another side note just to add in is that if you're a female, depending on, you know, your, if you're in menopause, not in menopause, what's going on for you? A lot of research is done on men, and that is something to take into consideration. And so, again, sure. really trying to figure out what is actually going to work for your body, whether this is writing down a food log day to day, writing down how you're feeling, if you're trying to get different performance goals, how those are being reached, how you're recovering, and really just taking note of what's going on for you is, I think, more insightful mm -hmm. than things such as the food pyramid or my plate, which it now is. Yeah. 
That's interesting. That's what, that's what it took for me is essentially to do that was complicated. If you were eating all these foods all day long, keeping a food long just did not work. So I took it to the, the limit limiting phase. I just stripped it all down to nothing and then worked up from there. And I found a balance that worked because otherwise it's so confounding when you're eating all these different kinds of foods, like what is causing my trouble? It's very difficult. Absolutely. It's so hard to figure out because, I mean, depending on what's going yeah. on for you, it could be gluten, it could be dairy, it could be soy, it could be FODMAPs. You could have something health-wise underlying, such as like autoimmunity, which is huge in this country and worldwide. I mean, there's so many different factors to try to figure out what actually is going on and then just add in like the confusion of all of these nutritional resources that are out there. And I think the at the end of the day, like you have to have a realistic perspective. Like you're never going to be. It's this is never anything that you like. Okay, I'm finished and um, I'm completely dialed in. You know, ultimately, what you want is to be able to lead a lifestyle that you can achieve your, you know, your your physical pursuits in a way where, uh, you know, you feel like okay. You know, I have the energy and the, the stamina to complete these, especially when it comes to hiking. And at the end of the day, like if you fluctuate a little bit on your weight or if you're not reaching all the goals you want from a strength perspective or a cardio perspective, as long as you can get through your, your goals, um, I think it's okay, even if you struggle a little bit. So it's never something that you can be like, all right, I'm, I'm done. It's a, just a continuous focus on staying and maintaining where you are. Yeah, it's like this continual evolution, if you will. Yeah, exactly. But um, so, Sarah, can you you want to plug your podcast, plug your services, anything you want to? You know, we'll include all the details in the show notes. But um, do you want to just sort of you know give a little commercial for yourself here? In terms of services, I work one on one with individuals out of Core Community Fitness, which is in Center Conway, New Hampshire, personal training. And then I work virtually with individuals, like I said at the beginning of the podcast, um, around strength training and sports nutrition, mainly for like mountain endurance athletes and enthusiasts through my Fed and Fueled, which is sports nutrition coaching and Functional Foundation, which is strength coaching. Those are just membership models. You can find them on my website. And then I also um, have the podcast, the Pursuing Endurance podcast, which again, we talk all about strength training and sports nutrition, entrepreneurship, and eating disorder recovery. Got it. And your pods, do you have guests on there or is it just you talking on your podcast? It's just me for now. I am hoping to start having guests maybe by like the end of quarter two. So maybe by like June of 2023. Got it. How, how is it just showing up on a hmm. podcast and being, you know, you don't have to like worry about the script or anything like that. You just have to answer questions. Is it nice? It's nice. I mean, I definitely, <laughs> depending on the episode, I do some research ahead of time so like episode three which anybody listening might actually be interested in which is all about the current uh scientific literature around different nutritional recommendations that one i had notes for because i knew that i was going to give the wrong amount of grams per kilogram of protein for example but um it's definitely it was weird at first just sitting with my microphone watching myself like the audio record on my computer um definitely more used to it now so being interviewed is definitely a whole different ball game but i'm having fun thanks doing great <laughs> awesome yeah, yeah. i, I want to do one of these days i want to go on a podcast where i just have to show up i don't have to worry about like the the script or scheduling or any of that stuff maybe i'll have you on mine 
Have I got a podcast for you? Oh, you do? Yeah. That that or Fantasy Pants, bro. Oh, I could do that. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. Talk about winging it. Uh, but Sarah, I was going to go through your gear list that's on your your website, but I think what I'll do is I'll just include the link. You know, we've mm-hmm. talked about sort of winter gear and I always, I'm always concerned that like me and Stomp, obviously like we have male specific stuff around like clothing and stuff like that. So you have some really good detail on the gear list that you use for three season and winter and running. So mm-hmm. I'll include that as a link in the show notes so that if anybody wants to check it out, I feel like your, your, your gear seems pretty dialed in. You got a lot of like crossover from what I use as well. Yeah, no, I try to provide like, you know, again on there, I think I have all the different options because of course, Depending on the temperature, I'm going to wear like different leggings, for example. But I kind of provided all of the options that I might pick from on there. Yeah, yeah. So awesome. So um, stick around. We're gonna go. We're gonna do a little segment here about. Um, I pulled some tidbits on White Mountain history, and then we're gonna do some search and rescue news as well. So, um, but Swamp, before we move on to the next subject, anything that I missed with Sarah that you wanted to cover? No, I appreciate the input. It's it's great. Um, a lot of it's familiar with me. It's like I have an, a dusty exercise physiology degree, and I love athletic trainers. I think you guys are the greatest, and uh, you know your stuff, Sarah. So keep on keeping on. It's good stuff. Thank you. Yeah, you bet. Let's dive into some White Mountains history, shall we? Whenever, whenever I drive around, I always sort of keep an eye out for the green historical marker signs. So I was over in Benton and Wentworth in that area for the, um, you know, for the hike on Musilaki. So I pulled a couple of tidbits for, uh, for history, but and I can get into those. So I have three of them. But Stomp, I didn't know. Do you want to do? Do we have more sponsors we want to we want to pull on this one? Sweet Beginnings Daycare is a New Hampshire state licensed child care provider that offers care for children from six weeks to 12 years with flexibility in before and after school care as well. Sweet Beginnings aims to instill a love for learning by providing a safe and positive experience within a loving and warm environment. Sweet Beginnings believes this is a good foundation to teach children in order to prepare them for their future. For more information, contact Sweet Beginnings at 603 603- Five six eight four five three zero. Visit them at Sweet Beginnings Daycare on Facebook, or email Shandy at Shandy Elliot. That's S H A N D I E L L I O T T at Outlook dot com. And Shandy would love to watch your kids while you go hiking. <laughs> <laughs> I added that, Mike. You added that. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. My kids are no. My ki- yeah, sorry, Shandy. My kids won't let me. Well, two of them would gladly let me go hiking. My oldest one, she would not let me drop her off. I'd have to take her. Uh, too funny. Cool. All right, well, uh, let Shandy take care of your kids while you go hiking. Anything else? Any other sponsors? <laughs> no, we're good. All right. So, first one stop. I've been thinking a lot about this. Do you see this kid with the. Um, he's got the big hair. And he's he's a crypto guy, and apparently he he's living in the Bahamas with his girlfriend, yes, yes. and they're all living together, and there's all kinds of stuff going on. And apparently, he's connected. He's got like he's a billionaire. He's got billions of dollars, and somehow and I don't understand how this stuff works, but he he basically just like for whatever reason he had a billion dollars. Now he has no money, and he's like I don't know, I don't have any more money. So with this cryptocurrency stuff, so the thing. 
this whole story, I've been paying attention to it, and I was thinking about in New Hampshire, before cryptocurrency, there was, um, you know, each, each country had their own sort of monetary policies, and there was no sort of international process. So the first version of cryptocurrency was actually established in New Hampshire after World War II in this place called the Brenton Woods Conference. So after World War II in New Hampshire, there was this conference where 44 nations came with their diplomats and they met at Bretton Woods and they did a conference for 30 days. And in that conference, basically what they did is they established how these countries were going to interact with each other when it came to a monetary funds. And they, they all agreed that they were going to peg their uh, currencies against the value of gold uh, for you know for for consistency's sake, and they built out like this international monetary fund. They built out the World Bank. They established the gold standard, and it allowed for countries to expand their sort of ability to trade with each other and set monetary policy, so that it was a lot a lot more predictable. And you know you didn't have things like the Great Depression where, you know, the value of currencies and inflation and things like that took off too significantly. So this all happened at Bretton Woods. So now it's where you go skiing and you do your snowmobiling. But back then there was a conference center where you had all the world's most important thinkers got together to establish our economic uh, policies that basically took us from World War II up until the last few years and now like this cryptocurrency stuff seems to be like the next version of that but i thought it was pretty cool that that happened in new hampshire yeah the world's most important stinkers at this point it's like i, I literally didn't know that Bretton woods that's pretty amazing i never connected it. i thought it was somewhere else but uh, a lot of good it's doing right now it's like geez yeah matter of fact the the probably the most significant person that was at that conference is a guy named john maynard um kenzie and he was, I probably, I may have mm-hmm. that name wrong, but I think I've got it right. Keynesian. It's Keynesian. Keynesian, yeah. So he basically established Keynesian economics, which is essentially using deficit spending to um, create jobs and to um, make sure that your unemployment rate is sort of low enough where your economy can grow consistently over time, which I think worked pretty well for a while. But once governments figured out that they can sort of spend at a deficit, you know, some governments were less disciplined about it than others. So Mm -hmm. he's a controversial guy, and I think he went out of, like, favor for a number of years. But he was essentially, like, the main person that established a lot of the infrastructure that the world now sort of runs off of and a lot of times like the Bretton Woods conference like people that are conspiracy theory types will point back to the Bretton Woods conference and say that like that was like the first beginning of like the one world order and all this crazy stuff which who knows I don't know I don't know if there's conspiracy stuff going on but it's an interesting fact that it's all happened at Bretton Woods which makes me think why doesn't Bretton Woods ever do any other interesting like world conferences you know, I never hear of anything from them ever since this. Well, I think there. I, I think that's pretty much just history now. I think it's all World Economic Forum now and Davos and everything else. I mean, you're seeing the same critters, just under different names. And um, I, I do study a lot of this stuff. And I mean, the Keynesian stuff is crazy. 
I mean, we're seeing sort of the results of that now, in my opinion. I mean, you're you're seeing a country talking about us in particular with trillions of dollars of debt, printing money, causes inflation. I mean, it's a lot of these principles that are in action right now are coming home to roost. So, yeah, we're in a deep hole right now. So, long conversation, complicated. I don't know enough about it. I know the tip of the iceberg, but it's uh, it's we're in a hole for sure. So hopefully uh, something's going to change. Yeah. It's just sort of interesting that like New Hampshire sort of had their mark on like one of the most important sort of meetings of the 20th century was um, of that yeah. time. But anyway. No, it's, yeah, that's super cool. It's just, oh, yeah, it, this is why yeah, I lose cool. sleep, dude. This is like we are in rough shape right now. Don't get too stressed out. But I'm going to continue on the politics stuff so you can get even more stressed out. <laughs> so the next one here is there is a there's an historical hinge. There's a historical marker in Claremont, which is um, it, it commemorates the historical handshake. So it's a green sign, and it's it's a um, an event that happened in June on June 11th, 1995. President Clinton. And Speaker of the House Newt Gingrich met at the invitation um, of the Congress of Claremont Senior Citizens. Um, and this must have been, I'm assuming this might have been around the time that Clinton was going to start running for re-election. Um, and they were debating issues affecting senior citizens. So during the debate, the two political foes shook hands and pledged to create a bipartisan commission to study federal limits on lobbying in financing of election campaigns. So the famous handshake on campaign finance reform was carried live on television and it received widespread media hmm. coverage, including front page attention in the newspapers nationwide. So this was like back back in the 90s, you still sort of had these interactions between the both sides of the political aisle around agreeing to work on things together. Like that's sort of unheard of now, but back then... It is interesting to think that like they were still focusing on limiting the ability for people to sort of donate money to election campaigns to influence their special interest. And then they also wanted to put limits on lobbying, which I think if you can look back from 1995 until now, you could think that their, you know, their approach to making sure that they limit these two areas was a colossal failure. But, you know, it's interesting to sort of go back to a simpler time where, at least you could get these people talking and they would agree to start looking at solving problems together, but can't even get that now. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, totally agreed. Yeah, but it's, I thought that was pretty cool that that happened in Claremont. And then the last little bit of historical tidbits that I have, actually I have two more. One is in Benton, New Hampshire, and there's a historical marker on there that uh, commemorates the Pike Tract, which was the beginning of the White Mountain National Forest. So when I was hiking up Glencliff with my friend Sean, I was explaining to him that Musilaki is significant, um, especially when it comes to AT through hikers, because it's sort of like their entrance to the White Mountain. So they hit, you know, they hit that sort of tablelands, and then you know you get up to the peak, and then you can see out to Franconia Ridge and the Presidentials, and out to to you know Maine and everything that's ahead of you, and it's sort of the gateway to the White Mountains. So the Pike Tract was a purchase of seven thousand acres of timber-covered mountain slopes um, that was abandoned by a. Um, 
uh, or abandoned farmland. It was a purchase from Bertram Pike in 1914. So it was the first acquisition towards the establishment of the White Mountain National Forest. So I thought that's significant that it was that track of land near Musalaki that is sort of the, the beginning of the White Mountain National Forest. And it's that's still the gateway for the AT through hikers into the White Mountains on that side. So. Hmm. Yeah, it's a nice area of the state. It's pretty. Yeah. And then the last one I have is there is a a historical marker in Warren, New Hampshire. So when you're driving back from Glencliff, I, I, I spotted it, and it commemorates Sarah Witcher in the Bear. So apparently this is a story of a three-year-old girl <laughs> that um, wandered off. She got lost in... The whole town was out looking for her, and apparently there was one guy that had said he had a dream that he was going to find Sarah on some, like, river or stream or something like that, and that she was being looked over by a bear. And then, sure enough, they found Sarah there, and she said that she had been sort of with these, like, furry creatures, and they assumed that she had been taken care of by some black bears. So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's great. And who knows if that's true. There's some books about it, so you can buy um, Sarah Witcher in the Bear stories. The cool thing I thought of, a, I, I, I picked up on this one, is that this is one of the newest historical markers. And the reason that this was put in mm-hmm. place is that it was at the request of a local elementary school. So the teacher and the students put together a proposal to get the historical marker put up, which I thought was pretty cool. So thumbs up for that teacher. Yeah, I wonder what the process is for that. It's interesting. Oh, like if there's like a certain time frame that has to elapse before you can qualify to submit or... Yes, yeah, I don't neat. know. It's interesting. I was poking through some of the Wikipedia listings as well, and it's interesting. Like they'll have a number of the historical markers that went up over the years that sort of commemorated um, battles between, um, con, you know, Confederate soldiers and, or not Confederate, but, you know, soldiers of the col- colonial soldiers and Native Americans have either been retired or they've been sort of rewritten, I think, to have much more of a sort of a neutral history around it. So I don't know how the editing of those is done or how you propose new ones. Hmm. Yeah, well, I'll do some research. That'll be my homework while you're on vacation. Yeah. What I would say, though, is interesting is that there's not a lot of, there's a couple of them, you know, you've got like the, 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 the Crawford House and you've got the Cherry Mountain Slide, but there's not a lot that commemorate any sort of significant historical activities around hiking. Like, I think you got Darby Field, but I wonder, like, it would be cool if you could find, like, who was the first person to do 4,000 footers? Where did they finish on? Stuff like that, but... Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe somebody listening knows more than I do about how to get these historical markers put up. Yeah, there's plenty around like Mount Washington and the Prezies, but I'm not sure outside of that range. What'd you guys think? You like the the history? Did you learn anything new? Yeah, I just got uh, triggered, man. Appreciate it. <laughs> Calm down, Stomp. What do you think, Sarah? Did you learn anything new, or do you know all this stuff? I don't know all of it, but it was definitely interesting. All right, very good. So. Yeah, we're the first in the nation to vote, apparently. Not that that matters much. Yeah, yeah. I heard that, the, like, I saw, saw something about uh, Governor Sununu was, like, trying to defend that. I think that they're always trying to take that away from New Hampshire. 
I bet. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, I can tell you one other thing, another historical thing, political, uh, the Omni Hotel. Mm-hmm. Mr. and Mrs. Stomp had a, a couple's massage in the same place that the Clintons had a massage. <laughs> Does that count for historical context? This is a PG podcast, <laughs> stories here. One is portable defibrillator automatic CPR machine helps save a hiker in cardiac arrest. So this was a gentleman that was hiking Mount Beerstad as his first Colorado 14,000 footer um, and he drove up there, had a successful ascent and he was coming down gradually and he was feeling exhausted and he didn't feel very well Um, So he sent some hikers down ahead of him to call for help. This gentleman was a physician, so he knew the symptoms of a heart attack. He felt the chest pain, the numbness in his left arm. He got down and rested on the ground. I guess he got down to the parking lot. 911 call went out to EMS, and uh, when they got there, they were able to, I guess actually maybe he didn't make it down. They decided to call for a, um, a helicopter and um, when they got to him, they apparently were able to identify that you know he was in bad shape, but they were able to, I guess, get to him with an automatic CPR machine. I guess it looks like a plunger that goes up and down on someone's chest, and um, he was in the middle of a heart attack, and I guess they were able to use this machine to save his life, which is pretty cool. I've never seen that machine before, but it looks pretty amazing. I mean, in the case of a lot of these um, cardiac events on the mountains, you typically have families or passerbys, good Samaritans, voluntarily start to do CPR on an individual that may be having a cardiac event, and they may be at it for upwards of an hour. I mean, it's just, it's heartbreaking, and it's, it's heroic all at the same time but this machine is uh very interesting i'd like to do some more research on it and see um how effective it is and how practical it is i mean it looks pretty big like i can't imagine a a responder hiking up trail with this thing on the pack but if this is stored in say a, a black hawk or a dart helicopter maybe there's some value there it's very interesting i've never, yeah, it never looks seen like it. It, it it sort of wraps around your way i would assume too there's probably a limit to the size of the person that can this can be used on mm, that's another issue but it looks like it sort of wraps around your body and then there's like a plunger thing that comes down and i'm assuming that that just sort of automatically you know does the plunging mechanism around your heart instead of having to do cpr yeah amazing clever yeah all right, so moving on to 
Our next story here, we've got a hiker's video that captures a terrifying moment that a base jumper slams into a canyon wall and then ends up dangling from a cliff. So this was in Utah. Um, hmm. A family witnessed this frightening scene when a base jumper. So base jumpers are these people that jump off of like radio towers, um, cliffs. I don't know. Really, I can't remember what base stand. You know, they'll, they'll jump off of like bridges. <laughs> I think it's bridges. I don't know what base stands for, but I forget. Yeah. Uh, let me take a stab at it. Bridges? I'm rusty with it too. So bridges, air, jumping on no, a plane. No, no, I think it's yeah? bridges, antennas. No. Span. Span. Oh, you're right. Yeah. So, yeah, bridges. Oh, right. man, we got to look this up quick. Right. Hold you on. You do this that, and I'm going to go through the story and here. So Mitch Edwards and his 12-year-old son, Baron, <laughs> captured the stomach-churning drama on their cell phones as it unfolded amidst the 700-foot Red Rock Canyons while they were hiking in Moab. Um, so this base jumper slammed into that thing hard and then started to fall straight down. He was probably two or 300 feet above the ground when he first hit the cliff. And then he got to about 100 feet before hitting a ledge. Um, and then his parachute, I guess, snagged on a ledge. Um, and then he was just sort of hanging on from there. He was lucky if the parachute hadn't caught on the rock, it probably would have led to his demise. So the father and son were kind of watching in mm. horror. And then uh, there were two other base jumpers that I guess sprinted to the bottom of the cliff and they started to you know, work their way up to try to figure out how do they save this guy. So we were close. I got spans, but uh, it's basically an acronym for four categories of fixed objects from which one can jump, being buildings, antennae, uh, or radio masts, spans, bridges, and earth, or cliffs. Very cool, very cool. Very good. Well, anyway, this guy was dangling and... Eventually, they were able to um, get, a, uh, I guess, some operation going to retrieve him, and then eventually he was airlifted to a nearby hospital. So um, the, the thing about base jumping is, is you got to avoid the, the canyon wall when you jump off. you got to jump out and not in. Yes. <laughs> yes, <laughs> correct. Um, and then this next story. So we've talked about this before. Matter of fact, I've seen this on my phone Stomp. So Apple has this new SOS. Um, so just so everybody knows, Stomp is one of those green text message people. So he, I don't, you don't have an iPhone, right? No, it's an Android. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so I don't even know if you know this, but like, so Apple people, when you're texting with me and you have the green bubble on your text, like we judge you. And we're basically like, you, you don't have an Apple phone. We're like, that. he's a green texter. Yeah. Uh, I so, get it. Anyway, I so that's it. why I said you're a green texter. But anyway, Apple phones, when you upgrade <laughs> to the latest OS, and I'm assuming there's like a level of phone too that you need to have, um, it goes into SOS mode when you're not um, connected to a cell tower. And I think that you can basically just send out an emergency text message and it picks it up via satellite. So that is now active and it sounds like in this case an Alaskan snowmobiler was rescued using this emergency functionality. So this is an OS 16.1 and it's designed for iPhone 14 owners. I don't think I have a 14, but it still gives me the SOS option on my phone. Uh, but anyway, this new technology hmm. is coming out 
And uh, this guy was in trouble and was able to use the feature in Alaska. And he was stranded in a rural area. Uh, this was around December 1st. State troopers received the alert that he was traveling by snow machine and had become stranded. And uh, they were able to rescue him successfully with no injuries. Very remote area on the fringes of where satellite connectivity is even available. Um, so... I guess Apple said that the satellite connectivity might not work in places above 62 degrees in latitude, such as northern parts of Canada, Alaska, um, in that area. But he was just close enough to uh, to be able to be reached. But I think for us, we'd be okay. But eventually, these phones stop are all going to have a connectivity to satellite, whether it's going to be Starlink from Elon Musk or some other um, satellite provider. I'm assuming that the, the, the hierarchy mm -hmm. would be Wi-Fi, cell connection, and then if you don't have cell connection, you'll have connectivity to satellite eventually. So my guess is that your cell phone will always be available for, for satellite if, you know, probably five years from now. Gotcha. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I'm looking it up now and there are several ways that this thing can be triggered. I believe if there was like a, a quick jolt in velocity or elevation it can go there's also just your default route which is you know pressing a couple buttons on your phone it gets triggered but um apparently initially when they rolled this out a lot of people were just getting triggered just unintentionally so it's very interesting i'm sure they've sort of worked out those bugs by now i would hope yeah so we'll see uh but more to come on the satellite capability in the future i'm sure that'll be a continuous topic for us um, next story is in California, an extreme storm traps hikers and their rescuers in California Canyon for three days. So this was a backpacking trip into the California <laughs> wilderness and it turned into a har harrowing three days for two hikers after an extreme storm swept through their area. So, um, these two hikers were from one from Colorado and then one from Los Angeles. They went on a multi-day adventure in the San... Gorgonio Wilderness in Riverside County, and they got hit by a heavy storm. Uh, there was flooding in L.A. and dumping snow in the mountains, so they hit. They got hit with the snow in the mountains, and eventually they they got disoriented and had to leave the trail. They got stuck in the steep canyon, and I guess as they were climbing down, one of them injured their foot. They had to stop. They did have all their backpacking gear, so they were able to pitch a tent. And then they had a personal locator beacon, which sent an emergency signal that was received by the um, the sheriff's department on November 7th. Um, they activated a search and rescue team to find the couple. There was bad weather and there was heavy rain and a lot of freezing and treacherous terrain. So the rescue team wasn't able to reach the victims until later that night. Um, and then two other teams and a helicopter attempted but failed to reach the victims due to the storm. So they had no options. So the rescue team basically just decided to shelter with them. <laughs> yes. The next morning, so they were there for two days. The storm subsided and the helicopters were sent back in. They still couldn't get them because of the cloud cover. Um, and eventually they had to call like 25 additional Alpine rescue personnel in from the region. Finally, the next day, five days after these hikers had gone on the mission and three days after the storm trapped them, the rescue helicopters were able to get to them. So they picked them all off the mountain. So no serious injuries, but 
kind of a crazy story, huh? Yeah, it really is. It's unusual. You just don't hear about that too often, but it made sense. I mean, the risk to the uh, rescuers trying to get out. Yeah, that could have been a second. Yeah, I would think the rescuers probably, um, you know, them showing up, it probably got the the victims sort of in a better place mentally, knowing that okay, I'm, we're not alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Um, and Snop, I don't know if you want to do these next two. There's one in uh, Utah, and then there is another in the Adirondacks. Do you want to just go to local? Um, you know, why don't we do the Adirondacks one, and then we'll 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 cover the uh, the Utah one afterwards, and we'll go to local. So, in the Adirondacks, there was okay. a 19 year old hiker that had gone out hiking with a friend of his. They had kind of an aggressive plan to summit, I think, the Algonquin Peak. So they were going to climb right Algonquin Boundary and Iroquois. 19-year-old with his friend, so two 19-year-olds, they, I guess, had some spikes for their boots, but not suggested micro spikes for icy conditions. They weren't wearing the best clothes, and um, I guess uh, they started off by summiting Mount Wright and then returned to the junction to discuss the rest of their plans. They started up Algonquin. One of the friends was faster than the other one, so... He went up ahead. The other friend decided he was going to bail out. They had some connectivity with their cell phones, so they were texting each other. The 19-year-old that had continued on summited around 4.30, and um, as he was getting down, obviously it gets dark, he became lost. He texted his father asking for a picture of the map to help find the closest road or trail nearby um, where he was, which was Lake Colden. Uh, but by that point, his spikes had broken. He was having trouble continuing on the ice. <coughs> so the father called 911, got a rescue going. Eventually, they found this kid, and he was hypothermic. I think they found him at like 4 in the morning. Uh, he was hypothermic, and they, you know, the lesson they said was like, look, start earlier in the day, wear proper clothing, and you know, have a better sense of what the weather forecast is going to be like in order to preserve prevent this incident so they were able to basically um take this kid he was Such in and out of call. sleep and consciousness but they were able to wake him up on on a couple of yeah. phone calls but you know it, unbelievable i mean that's like moderate you know hypothermia this really kid's lucky. really lucky yeah. Yeah, really scary yeah it's a crazy story i mean deep snow unbelievable yep. yeah exactly uh, not to have the map, to, I mean, to call for a picture of the map. I mean, so many mistakes, but thank God they made it out. Yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, separating from your, your friend. Separating, yeah, groups. We don't talk about that enough, Mike. Group separation. We There was like a year, I think the first or, you know, a year into our effort here, we talked a lot about group separations, especially on Chikora, but we haven't heard about that recently, knock on wood. But that's an important one. Always stay together. You know, the slowest pace rules the day. Oh, never leave somebody yeah, behind. Exactly. I mean, you get into so many of these predicaments because you you know, you're if you get separated and you're at a trail split and you assume they're going one way and they go another, you know, you can put your even if you're ahead and you're mm-hmm. the fast one, like you can put your friends' lives at risk 
by going too fast just as much as you can do it by going too slow. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So this next one is um, this keeps coming up. Like I think we've had about five of these this year. So this is a um, hiker in distress on Champney Falls Trail. And again, I'm not saying like this keeps coming up from the perspective that anybody's doing anything wrong. I just think people just need to be aware if you're hiking in the whites, especially in that that whole section of trails on the Kangamangas where you've got Champney Falls, you've got Hedgehog, you've got the UNH Trail, all that, that entire area there, there's no cell connection. And there's no cell connection until you get up high, you know, but if you're coming down from like Champney Falls, like you're really, you're in a situation where you've got to make the decision to either, you know, get somebody to hike out and then they got to drive all the way down to the bottom of the kink in order to get cell connection or you just got to gut it out. So um, luckily, this person had a beacon. So it was a 54-year-old gentleman from uh, Massachusetts that was on the Champney Falls Trail, um, and he was able to activate a beacon. Um, he was coming down from the summit when he became uh, he began suffering chest pains. Uh, they were about two and a half miles from the trailhead when the beacon was activated, and you know there's no cell phone connection in the area, so they couldn't establish direct communication. Uh, but conservation officers and the Forest Service and Lakes Region SAR responded. And uh, apparently this gentleman was able to hike under his own power and get pretty close to the trailhead. So he had activated the the beacon around 1230. He got, they got to him around 2 p.m. And then he was evaluated at the scene. And, um, you know, Conway Ambulance personnel transported him to Memorial Hospital. But I think if you're going to be going into that area, just be aware. Like, you either have to have a beacon with you or, you know, you just have to understand the cell phone connectivity and, and Champney Falls is just non-existent. Zero. Yep. And to finish off the list, we have a hiker. No, no, not a hiker, a hunter. Oh, I love these stories. I think the... Uh, the Oh, these are these are interesting. There's been quite a few this uh, season. I think hunting for deer has ended, if I'm correct. This is uh, what what day is this here? Tuesday the sixth. I think it ended uh, over the weekend. Yeah, I've seen a few um, with uh, with with the deer hunting. I've seen a few like, can you identify these people? Like you know, game camera pictures of people hunting on private land or doing stuff they're not supposed to do. Yeah, it's always yeah. interesting. But this one here is, um, so Sunday, November 13th, um, New Hampshire State Police was notified of a male subject who inadvertently shot himself in the leg. So um, I guess this was a 23-year-old person that was, he was target shooting and he had inadvertently shot himself in the leg while manipulating the pistol in his jacket pocket. So I used to laugh at people that would do this, but remember that time I hiked with you, Stomp, and you accidentally shot yourself in the leg with the beer spray? <laughs> so you just I always don't judge, bring that I one don't up, judge uh. people, but I guess after further investigation, it was determined that the gentleman was target shooting with his father and other family members in a sand pit in Shelburne, and he was manipulating the pistol in his jacket pocket, which caused it to go off. So a good rule of thumb is that if you have a loaded handgun in your jacket pocket, do not fiddle with it, folks. Don't manipulate you can it. Shoot yourself. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no manipulation. <Yes. laughs> anyway, 
It's not a fidget spinner. It's yeah, a freaking I, gun. I guess he's okay. <laughs> yeah. Amen. That's Good it, stuff. So. Wow. Do we still have our we special do. guest here? I'm here. <laughs> We've been dominating yeah, the airwaves. <laughs> That's all right. Mike, I'm so proud of you. You made it through this not feeling well. I hope you feel better. Yeah, I feel okay. It's just the cough is annoying, but... Um... I'm invigorated. I'm going to get my strength training in. I'm going to get, I'm, going to, I'm turning over a new leaf, Sarah, and I'm going to get jacked. <laughs> okay. Or I'm at least going to be able to do a plank for 90 seconds. Contact me when you need a coach. <laughs> I will. Oh, that's great. Thank you very much, Sarah. Yeah, thank you. Mike, feel better. All right. You bet. And uh, yep, that's we'll be seeing All everybody right. next week before the holiday break. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to learn more about the topics covered in today's show, please check out the show notes and safety information at slasherpodcast.com. That's S-L-A-S-R podcast.com. You can also follow the show on Facebook and Instagram. We hope you'll join us next week for another great show. Until then, on behalf of Mike and Stomp, get out there and crush some mega peaks. Now covered in scratches, blisters, and bug bites, Chris Staff wanted to complete his most challenging day hike ever. Fish and game officers say the hiker from Florida activated an emergency beacon yesterday morning. He was hiking along the Appalachian Trail when the weather started to get worse. Officials say the snow was piled up to three feet in some spots and there was a wind chill of minus one degree. And there's three words to describe this race. Do we all know what they are? Lieutenant James Nealon from New Hampshire Fish and Game. Lieutenant, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. What are some of the most common mistakes you see people make when they're heading out on the trails to hike here in New Hampshire? It seems to me the most common is being unprepared. I think if they just simply visited uh, hikesafe.com and got a list of the 10 essential items and had those in their packs, they probably would have no need to ever call us at all. 